Welcome to Room for Growth, a Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. Hey, everyone. Uh, Welcome to Room for Growth again. Today, we have Caitlin Watson, who's a member of our growth marketing team. Caitlin's one of the leaders on the team, and she's seen a lot. She's uh, spent a lot of time with a lot of different teams, with a lot of different clients. We're going to get into and unpack some of those challenges. Caitlin, I know, Billy, you you hired Caitlin, and so uh, you work closely with her. What was it that, you know, really uh, made you think about Caitlin when we were thinking about our next guest on Room for Growth? Yeah. So a couple of things. First of all, I want you to just put yourself in a mindset for a moment. Imagine that you're opening your phone, you're clicking on a push notification, you're reading a message, or maybe you're opening an email. And it's just like, it's so beautiful. It's so engaging. It offers something new. You are smiling. You're delighted. You click on it. You go through to the app, You make kind of an immediate purchase decision, or you open you know, an app or a product or a website and you're just delighted with what you see. Like there's an element on the page that just brings life into what your shopping experiences or your browsing experiences. I am going to guarantee that that experience was envisioned and created by Caitlin Watson. Caitlin Watson is just a person who her magic is her ability to create elegance. She's one of those people that when you open a campaign that she's thought of or an experience that she's helped build, you almost stop and look at it because you're like, why is this so delightful? Why it's smooth. She's really thoughtful about how technical and creative come together to create something really beautiful at the outcome. So her experiences in and of themselves, I often stop and I just look at them and I I give them like this wow moment because they have an otherworldly quality to them that I always know has her fingerprints on it. But second, as a leader, she is just beloved. People love working for her. They love working under her. They love joining her teams. I see people who were previously like frustrated come onto her teams and become super high performing, become super awesome at what they do. They really come alive and feel empowered. So she's just got this ability. She's almost a person who, you know, I get to be her boss is a little scary because she's so freaking good that sometimes I'm like, holy smokes, lady, like, you know share your magic with the world. So she's an awesome leader. She's a killer marketer. And she is great at envisioning experiences that just have this like seamlessness to them that I think is unique. So I always want to talk to her, but she's got a great background too. She's got a really interesting background story. She's got some core beliefs in her capabilities that come from something kind of unique. I mean, she's got a lot of grit to her, her ability to be resilient and sunshiny and look for the win and keep moving forward. Even when she faces pretty insurmountable setbacks, I think is something else that makes her really unique. So I wanted to talk to her about like, how does she create all of this matter? How does she do so many things at once to bring together a winning experience, a winning ecosystem for a team, these kind of projects getting like pulled off without a hitch. Clients love her. She just like kind of brings delight left and right. Um, So I think it'll be fun to talk to her about how others can embody that. As our conversation with Caitlin, made me think of the last few guests that we've had. We've talked a lot about frameworks. And as somebody that kind of, um, you know, I I like to think I'm pretty good at thinking on my feet and I'm a very go with the flow guy. It's been a good reminder uh, for me of like, 
hey, these frameworks are in place to make sure that autopilot doesn't send you down the wrong path or, or um, that you don't miss kind of some really strong quality elements. And so our last couple guests has maybe been a good thing for me that, you know, I need to make sure I stay disciplined with different frameworks when I'm thinking through strategy, thinking through some decision making. And Caitlin brought that back up during our interview. So it's a good reminder. Yeah, totally. I think we've also had a theme lately that just keeps resonating with me about how to fail and how to fail well and how to fail safely and how to create safety for teams to be able to fail and learn from that, as well as how to reinvent. Like I keep thinking about something that Jared Cady, our senior vice president of strategy said last week about how American Express started as a company like almost 200 years ago that moved physical goods around New York City and then had to reinvent themselves to become the company that we know them as today. Yeah. So this theme around how to fail and still move forward, how to learn, how to reinvent yourself, how to imagine a world that's very different than it is today, I think is just core to both the ecosystem that we're living in. Some of this has a little bit of potential recession thinking. Recessions are a really important time to be thinking about where to invest to differentiate yourself, differentiate your messaging, um, and continue to make progress towards digital transformation experiences or just experiences with your brand that are stellar. But it's been an interesting theme. I'm curious what has been top of mind for you this week, Billy. Yeah, I mean, and also, as you mentioned, the recession, it's also, I've been thinking a lot about, wow, as fear gets in, uh, placed in the market, wallets potentially tighten, you know, as this, as this moves forward, we'll see what happens. But it puts even more pressure on kind of that messaging element. You know, consumers have limited capacity and they might be tightening up a little bit. So you can't get away with just like, poor quality messaging and and engagement. You have to really give consumers a a true reason as to why they should engage with your product, buy your product. And so it's, I think marketing is as important as ever currently because of just the really big need to make sure we're communicating to consumers in in a meaningful way because there's just too many choices and maybe limited funds to engage with the brand. Yeah, 100%. With that in mind, I think we get right to Caitlin Watson, our interview with her. Yeah. All right, Caitlin Watson, welcome to Room for Growth. We are excited to have another team member. The last couple episodes, we've been uh, fortunate to have some Willow Tree team members join the podcast. And Caitlin, you're in the trenches with our clients every day, working on initiatives, high pressure campaigns. And so we're excited to share some of that with our listeners today. Before we get too far, though, Caitlin, tell our listeners about yourself your role here at Willow Tree and, and how you came to Willow Tree. Yeah, well, thank you, Billy and Billy. Very glad to be here with you both. I know we get to spend a lot of time day to day together, but excited to get to grace your podcast. So yeah, Billy, as you said, my name is Caitlin Watson. I am an associate growth director here at Willow Tree. What that really means is that I lead teams and people day to day in performing the best growth marketing that we can for our clients. So brainstorming new ideas, helping to implement tech stack, design content, creative, really the entire gamut and helping our clients reach for the stars. So yeah, what brought me to Willow Tree? I have a long history in digital marketing, growth marketing, lifecycle marketing, I started out in the nonprofit and startup space and have experience helping brands that are very, very new and also very, very old that are 
brick and mortar that have no stores whatsoever really go through digital transformations kind of across the entire life cycle of a business. So I came to Willow Tree actually after a phone call with a very Billy Lowen and just getting so inspired by her and everything that she brings to this company. And I wanted to be a part of the crew. So here I am today. Yeah. Caitlin and I, the first time we talked, we immediately bonded over. We both come from nonprofit space. It's no shocker, but I love to hire from the nonprofit space because I think what you find in that industry is particularly for marketing is people who are especially tied to performance because in the nonprofit space, you basically have to make $4 for every dollar that you spend in order to be an ethical organization. So you have to drive 4x growth on your investment in marketing. And two, nonprofit people generally wear ton of hats. So they're not afraid of silos that traditionally exist in big organizations. They're totally okay with being like, yes, I can help with your web strategy. I can help with your app strategy. I can make sure they're all connected. And then on top of that, we'll plan campaigns. We'll be back end stack. We're IT, we're marketing, we're analytics. Like there's just no boundaries. And I really love that mindset as well as how you solve problems when you are sort of resource poor. So Caitlin and I bonded over that pretty quickly. And then since then, we've been working on some of the biggest challenges in the growth practice, including surviving the pandemic together in this business. So for folks who don't know, of course, like everybody else during the pandemic, we went to entirely remote working teams. And then during that time, Willow Tree for the first time, and particularly our growth practice, we started hiring remotely as a strategy. So now growth has a really large remote practice that has introduced some new challenges. And Caitlin has been at the helm of engaging even our remote work crew. So today we're going to talk a lot about what it means to be persistent and find success, how grit plays into marketing and how it's a critical leadership and execution trait to have. And then I think we can also talk about things like how we've been so successful at keeping remote employees engaged and keeping teams high-performing, what it means to be a high-performing team, and how you can be high-performing without being an asshole. Yes, my favorite topic, Billy. How not to be an asshole. (laughs) All right. So Caitlin, today we want to talk a lot about grit and what grit means, why it's so important as a leadership trait, but also why it's important when you're a marketer. You are just bound to face obstacles. You are bound to face outcomes that weren't what you expected. Talk to us a little bit about what grit means to you personally and professionally. Yes, grit means a lot to me personally and professionally. Billy, you know this, but I come from a long line of gritty individuals. Basically, everyone in my family is an entrepreneur. They own their own business. I swear I have one of the most hardworking sets of parents in the world. Neither of them graduated college. My sister and I were the first people in our family to graduate college. They put themselves back through college when we were in high school and college ourselves. So I think kind of this theme of working hard and never stopping is really kind of baked into my DNA, let alone I'm a proud Philadelphia native. And so we're kind of that classic underdog city. I will give a shout out to, we even have a mascot named Gritty (laughs) to the NHL Flyers. So it's really kind of baked into my DNA. But what I've come to love about this topic of grit is that it's not just something that you're born with, but I do truly believe it's a skill that any single person can learn. There's actually a lot of intellectual and research debate about this, whether it is a core personality trait or whether it is something that you learn. And I kind of sit in the camp of both. I think some folks are, are kind of born this way. It's kind of bred into who they are, but 
I think this is a skill that we can teach our teammates, we can teach our companies, we can embody as brands and as marketers. So I'm really passionate about this topic. I think for me, grit means a couple of things. I see it as kind of this indomitable spirit that will carry you through whatever you're going through. When I hear grit talked about a lot, kind of the words resilience are often used or in business, we talk a lot about having a growth mindset. So that ability to not be afraid to fail and try things over and keep moving. And I think that while they're used as synonyms for grit, I don't think that they're exactly the same thing, but I do think that they have kind of this interlocking working in which they all come together. So in business, we talk about this growth-oriented mindset and saying, you know, the end is not predetermined. We can learn, we can fail, we can grow, we can evolve. So I think this kind of sets up that like metaphorical hallway, right? Like there's always a new door to open. I think resilience is how we pick ourselves up when we do fail. So when we run that A-B test and it falls flat, we didn't predict what we thought we were going to. When we really try something new and shoot for, you know, swing for the fences and it fails, that's how as marketers and people, we get back up. But I think what grit does is allows us to move through all of that with kind of this end purpose in mind. So whether we're failing, whether we're succeeding, we're kind of always walking down that hallway, trying new things, opening new doors, and knowing kind of what we're working at and what that vision is and where we're headed and that belief that we can get there kind of in the end. Love it. And I don't know if I knew that you were a Philly native, but now it just like all makes sense. But uh, Philly, I'm just kind of scared of, of the Philly uh, natives. They didn't have an intimidation uh, factor o- over me. And we have, we've got a few of those at Willow Tree. So it's a, a new theme that I've uh, uh, discovered. So it makes sense. But so we talked about this topic a lot on the podcast with a few different guests, like the ability to fail, learn from those mistakes, it's kind of a core attribute of marketing. And it's critical. Why do you think this is so important? This kind of the ability to experiment, learn, fail, and then kind of keep going. Why do you think that's so important in marketing? Yeah, I think kind of one of the reasons that I fell in love with marketing and really chose this as my career path is because there is no right answer there will never be a right answer and it changes every day. So when you think you've got it, when you think you've unlocked what the new thing is, what your audience want, it's always going to change. Our industry is ever evolving, whether that be technology or the people that we serve and what they want and how we can deliver it to them. So I think it's quintessential to who we are as marketers to continue to test and learn and grow. And I think what's so important about Grit is it's easy to say those things, especially for companies Like Billy mentioned, we come from the nonprofit world. So to fail can sometimes mean a really big thing to a company, right? When your budgets are small, it's really scary to put your neck out on the line and to actually do testing. So I think that's one of the important things here is the willingness to always try and to continue going down that pathway. That's the hard part. I think it's easy to get excited about A-B testing and what's to come and fun new things we can learn, but it's actually really hard to put it into practice and to do it consistently in a marketing program. Caitlin, where do you draw the line between this balance of you need to create space for teams to learn from their failure and develop that grit so that they work through those failures towards a better outcome? But ultimately, that's still very anchored to success. So 
How do you both create the safe place for failure, the acceptability of it, the inevitability of it, the learning curve? Like I think a lot about an interview we did early on this podcast with Ann Bono, where she said, you know, it's okay for my teams to fail. It's just not okay for them to fail the same way twice. How do you balance the need to create like psychological safety around the idea of failure, the resilience to overcome, keep learning, try the next thing versus accountability to results, to quality? Ultimately, there are some failures that we don't super tolerate, right? Like to that point, we don't allow email errors to just go out and be dubbed like, oh, that was just a mistake. It was just a failure. No, that was just a mess up versus something where you're failing and you're learning from it. Like, Talk to us a little bit about how you hold high quality in regard while simultaneously creating safety for teams to fail. Absolutely, Billy. I think that's one of the things that I think probably most about. I lead about 20 different folks either directly under me or working on projects here at Willow Tree. And so I am always thinking about, you know, how do we create this psychologically safe environment for our team to continue growing? But like you said, but like simultaneously uphold really high quality for our clients and really deliver on that premium work. I think the first place that I always default back to is to create a lot of clarity where possible, right? So kind of drawing that line in the sand of like, what is acceptable and what's not acceptable? What are things that are, are major failures of job or position or things that we can't bet the business on, right? These are things that are, are not kind of acceptable to, to test or to try and to fail at. And where do we have a lot of space to play? So I think having a positive mindset and kind of focusing on that failure and that testing and spaces that feel like good bets for our clients. So that might be, you know, taking a holistic roadmap approach to A-B testing and saying, here are the core questions that we have about our consumer or our brand and kind of plotting out what that means to test and to fail in those areas and how that feels acceptable and also safe for a lot of clients that we work with. But again, kind of really creating those that clarity, I think, is that first place to start and holding folks accountable to those actions and creating a lot of team-wide awareness, right? So I think one of my philosophies, too, and if it sounds really akin, is it's okay to fail, but we have to talk about it, right? So having team normings or team retros in which we can stop and pause and say, hey, this is what happened. This is where the breakdown occurred. Let's all talk about it and figure out how to fix it moving forward. But I think not shying away from those conversations is really the most important part. So not only that person learns, but everyone else in our team and our group can kind of simultaneously pick up that knowledge and all be better moving forward. You know, it's interesting as I'm recording this, there's yeah. a agile training happening right outside of the room. And I'm thinking as you're talking, like at our organization, we're a, a development firm. We do agile projects every day, all day. And I don't think a lot of marketers were at least raised on agile. And a lot of the things you're talking about are very kind of those agile principles that we bring to the way that we do marketing. And, you know, that's not some new innovation. We're not the first ones to do that. That's been going on for a while. But with that, you know, I'm curious how you deal with incomplete data. You know, you're starting a project. We don't have all the information that we need to have. And I think a lot of organizations get, or marketers sometimes get stuck in, like it kind of gets stuck because I can't do anything until I have all of the answers. We've got to do all the research and then we'll have the silver bullet marketing tactic, metric or whatever that we need to do. I mean, that's just not how we roll here. I'm curious, like, how do you do that? How do you balance like delivering really high quality deliverables without having all the data or 
subjective creative uh, feedback that you might deal with. And you got to kind of be resilient to move through that. Tell me about how you deal with that and how our teams deal with that on a regular basis. Yeah, Billy, I think that is exactly in my mind where grit comes to play really big kind of in these topics. Because I think for anyone, especially businesses who are starting out, but even large companies that have years and years of data, they might not have the right data to answer the questions that they want or might not have access to certain types of data or even just, you know, the marketer's dream peering into the minds of our consumers. That's not always possible. And especially if you're trying to launch something on a tight turnaround. So I think kind of having this confidence is what I try to instill in our teams that we might not have it all, but what do we have? So I think focusing on resources and things that are available within our fingertips, within our spheres, whether that's leaning on, you know, third party research or quickly conducting some of our own kind of trying to do some of this back of the napkin math sometimes, if you will, just to take a safe, small bet. I think starting small is often where I try to coach my teams to start and my clients to start taking these little bets, doing a little test, seeing if our proof of concept can kind of work and then moving forward, I think is really the best place to go. But it takes a lot, a lot of trust to kind of start doing that. And I think what I see from folks often is that there is this analysis paralysis. You want all of the answers. Billy, you said that silver bullet. Sometimes in marketing, that never comes. And so I think kind of being at peace with that answer and knowing that we're going to hedge our bets and kind of make them in the best way possible and test and learn and see our results and try something new really is the way and sometimes the only way to blaze a trail and move forward. And, you know, I'll notice that sometimes with that, it's really easy. A lot of marketers will get caught up in only doing user interviews, only doing journey work at the beginning of a project. And then it's like, how, how often have we come across a marketing team that like, yeah, we did some journey work three years ago. And we haven't touched it since. And it's kind of looked at as this upfront thing. And so these, these are not just things you need to begin with. They're always kind of growing and things you need to be coming back to on a regular. Do you guys agree? A hundred percent. I mean, I think of one example of this that was really pertinent. So this is for IBM as the client. I won't tell you exactly what division it was or what exactly the project was. But I think what we learned from this project are, is some structure and some tenants that I take with me in every ecosystem where we think about how to anticipate failure and have grit through it is we basically started and we set a really ambitious outcome. It was an outcome that if we could reach it, we would drink, our stakeholders would drink, they'd probably get promotions. It was going to be a really big deal. So it was an ambitious outcome as the North Star. We all knew exactly what we were trying to do. We were trying to increase this big business metric, this change in behavior by an exact percentage. And then what we did is we got with top of funnel marketing teams, their SEO, their SEM teams, the work that we were doing in own channel, the work that was happening for product optimization with engineering teams. We got all of us together and we started super ambitious, actually. We said, how many small tests could we launch in a week? And if we launched a test on a Monday, could we hold each other accountable to read results by a Friday? So we started out way too ambitious. We were launching a ton of good tests. It was a lot of good tests. The reason it was too ambitious is it was just more tests than the data could come in for in the course of a week. Some of them we learned it would take two weeks to get any kind of like meaningful impact data about them. But still, we were trying to go as fast as we could and launch as many statistically significant, very real tests as possible. 
all aimed at this single outcome. And we knew we were going to fail at first. That was part of it. We knew we were not going to be successful at the get-go of this project. And that every week we were going to have to come together and be like, what did we fail at? What did we learn from this failure? Okay, what tests are we going to launch this next week? How long is it going to take for us to get data to come in that would actually inform? And we realized their cycle for data is closer to two weeks. It takes about that long for a test to conclude. But I think that was the right approach. Set an outlandish goal. Know that you're going to fail because it's too outlandish to be successful the first time. If you could be successful, everyone would do it. Be so ambitious about how fast you want to learn and how much velocity you want to drive and then let yourself anchor to the data as you go. Like That's at least one example that has always stuck with me for the ways that we approach huge companies to think about how we drive big business outcomes for them. I don't know if that answered your question, Caitlin. I'm curious what you thought of when you heard Billy's rebuttal. Yeah, I know. Actually, I was thinking of something very similar to that, Billy, and kind of the core between those two and something that I think if I could just humble brag about Willow Tree, one of my favorite reasons of working here is what you said as you were starting that story, Billy, was you got together with growth marketing and engineering and product and design and SEO. And so that has kind of been one of the keys and unlocks really for myself and kind of this ecosystem that we live in here at Willow Tree is that it's really easy almost a little bit too easy sometimes to start on a problem because there are so many folks that we get to talk to and pull in and pick their brains and really quickly kind of connect to other parts of the business that as a marketer is not always easy. Sometimes you are very siloed and you sit very, very distant from product or from web or any of the other folks that you might need to talk to to kind of get something spun up off of the ground really quickly. So I love that that you mentioned that example, Billy, because I think that's certainly an unlock that I feel here at Willow Tree a lot into kind of Billy Fisher rapid testing. You know, how do we kind of start from not a whole lot in the beginning? Yeah. So with that, you know, you talk about bringing groups together and that's definitely, you know, a big, a core element to how we work, bring a really small team of A players together to, to do idea generation and solve problems. How do you stay focused in those types of scenarios on outcomes, strength of ideas with just out being a jerk and kind of coaching teams and certainly our clients and brands on, and at times to like, what are we actually trying to accomplish? And I don't, Curious, like how you deal and navigate with this. Totally. And with many ideas, how do you say that's a good idea? And that idea, we're going to leave on the ideation floor and go keep going this way. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Billy. Yes, this is something that is near and dear to my heart as I often coach a lot of creative teams. And in marketing, that is one of the most subjective ways that that you can do anything, right? I think one person can have an idea and think it's these news and one person can have a different idea and say, this is Super Bowl commercial ready, right? And, and there's not often a really good way to prove between the two, which is the best and how do we move forward? I think in these moments, what I like to default to are frameworks. So really coming together with all of the wickedly smart folks that are in the room, kind of getting that big, big brainstorm, that giant pool of ideas but having a really structured way to sift through those and to kind of champion ideas that are really core against our business objectives, our outcomes and the KPIs that we're hoping to drive for our clients. And so sometimes this can look 
really simple. It can look like throwing up a, a shared online whiteboard as we're talking about virtual remote kind of hybrid teams. It could mean being in person and really just having a lot of different colored stickies in front of you and drawing on a whiteboard wall. But one of the exercises I've recently been going through with my clients and my teams is we're starting to think about holiday, right? The, the jingle bells are ringing and all companies are kind of thinking about Black Friday and how do we start to kind of tackle this season that is upon us and is huge for e-commerce. Lots of ideas are obviously kind of swirling. One of the things that I like to do is kind of plot a simple axis, right? What are the outcomes that we're hoping to meet for our client? What are the main consumer goals of this season? And really aligning and working through with my creative teams, where do our ideas fall in this matrix? And then circling the ones that kind of bubble to the top and agreeing to move forward with those and really try to hone in the ones that are going to have maximum impact and not only are kind of bringing unique or, or novel ideas to the marketplace. Winter is coming. I'm not ready for this holiday talk. Get out of here. You're kicked off with that. It is coming. You're in you're in the wrong place, Billy Fisher. I have like anxiety that we're not talking about holiday enough. I like to start talking about holiday in June. We started in July, Billy. Yeah, so I, I guess in marketing it's a necessity. Yeah. You know, I had a I started my career out in the advertising industry and Jack Buchanan was uh, an early mentor of mine and he had this kind of just hard rule and that often creative teams will mix ideation with evaluation. So you get into this brainstorm, somebody mentions out an idea, and then all of a sudden somebody says, well, I'm not sure we tried that before. I don't think that will work because of X, Y, and Z. And all of a sudden that person feels squashed. They might have had the best idea ever, but they're not going to say it because their idea got squashed or like the eliminates the idea of the build upon, you know, like, yeah, that's cool. What if and so one of the, the kind of frameworks that I love to follow whenever I'm ideating is like, okay, like separate evaluation and ideation as two separate activities. They might immediately follow each other, but like create time blocks around those two things. Is that something that you tend to follow as well? Yes, Billy, that is really core to kind of our philosophy. Actually, we have found kind of a, a three-part model works best for some of our teams. So before the brainstorm, since we have, we're talking about data, right? We actually have kind of this like homework information gathering stage where we're going to do research. We're looking at analytics of how last year performed. We're doing SEO analysis for what are our trending topics that are coming up. So kind of feeding our teams and kind of feeding these folks that are going to come up with those really great ideas, all of the data and the inputs that can help make their ideas that much smarter by having this kind of like jumping off point from it. And then to your point, Billy, kind of having that like dedicated, anything goes, right? The wilder the idea, the better, really letting everybody kind of unshackle for an hour and, and kind of sit down and, and get a little bit crazy with it. And that's how we start to build upon some of those really great ideas. But then, yes, kind of having a separate meeting. Sometimes we even hold them a week later. And that when we have the space to allow our teams to do that, sometimes we find some really good ideas even bubble up in between that time to kind of marinate and sit and grow. And so having that time to then come back together and then say, okay, let's look at our pool. Let's evaluate what is meeting our outcomes, what is reaching the way that we want it to reach. And then deciding is, is really critical for teams. And creating that psychological safety, Billy, that you're talking about. How do we encourage our creative folks to keep being creative, right? And it's certainly not by squashing ideas. And thinking about that the whole time we've been talking about how to fail 
is just as important as how to fail is defining periods in a way that you understand what's expected of that period and how much you can fail during that process. So to your point, Caitlin, if you can create in a process time for homework and information gathering and where to look, there can be some guardrails there, but like that's going to be a good place. It's pretty open sky. Of course, you're going to want to look at competitive sets at historical benchmarks, et cetera. But there's some space to fail even in that and how you look at potentially examples that just like might not be relevant, but it's always interesting to pay attention outside of industry. In ideation, great time to fail. There should be no limits to how much you fail in terms of the ideas that come to the table. Evaluation, though, we've got to get a little tighter. We've got to decide how can we right-size this idea into a space where we can test and learn from it without spending our entire Christmas budget on something that might fail. Not just Christmas, of course, all holidays that happen toward year end. And then there are times where you really can't fail. We are not failing on the date that we launch our new e-commerce checkout. We're not failing on the day that we're launching Black Friday emails and we're launching eight of them in a 24-hour period. You know, So I think that's a good tenet here is understanding when do you create the space for failure? And then when do you create the space to learn and talk together? You have to really like carve out those ceremonies to make sure you're following these kind of like build it, measure it, learn from it cycle in a meaningful way. On that point, Caitlin, when is the right time to let go of an idea? When's the best time to decide this thing that we've been trying to do is not working? It is time to pivot. It's time to shift. It's time to bring some new energy to market. I think we hear this all the time. We hear it particularly from clients who are racing to catch up to market and they're just trying to create like a table stakes experience to try to match their competitors and their underperforming benchmarks or something like that. That's a really common place where what should work sometimes doesn't work and it's time to reevaluate. What's your thoughts on this? Yeah. And I'm glad that you asked, Philly, because I think this ties really nicely into grit because as someone that kind of champions this topic of grit, I think there's often a lot of negative negative stigmas that come along with it, right? So I think when some folks hear this, they think about the person that's never giving up. They're holding on to something so tight. They are the bull in the china shop. They're kind of just going, going, going and never pausing. So just to quickly kind of define, I think you know, grit is not inflexibility. I think grit is not kind of this unwillingness to change or to release goals and get new goals. I think the purpose of grit is to really look at that long-term goal, like this brand will be successful. What is the highest of high visions that we have for this company, for this brand, for this project, whatever it might be, and always being committed to working to that and not committed to those micro projects or goals or things that we think are kind of going to get us there. I think that's really key when we talk about grit because I see a lot of folks, especially as they're starting out in their careers, get really frustrated when something's not working. It's not quite landing the way they want it to, but they want to keep on it, right? They're, they're kind of too far down the pathway to raise their hands and say, I think we need to move on. I think this was a mistake. We've got to change our approach here. That takes a lot of vulnerability for someone to do, especially in a business sense. So I think when we talk about grit, we want to keep that kind of longevity in mind. And so I think that gives permission to folks, especially to be able to kind of give up on a goal or give up on something that they thought was going to work. So I think kind of having that safety and knowing that this is an option, should we do that? 
what I look for when we kind of hit those breaking points, if you will, is to really define that breaking point, right? Like what of our KPIs is not working? And at what point do we feel like this is no longer a safe bet or a safe action that we're taking, you know, time and effort? Are we pouring a lot of resources and things into this project or into, you know, this thing that we're working towards and it's not giving us the returns that we hoped? But I think having a plan for all of those and how we're going to keep moving forward is really key to kind of progress, like I said, to that ultimate vision, to that ultimate goal. I think some of the biggest brands in the world do this, right? They're not always successful in the campaigns that they put out or the initiatives that they try. But in the longevity of a consumer's lifespan, right, those often go unnoticed. They kind of fall by the wayside if you do your brand right, if you can kind of make those safe bets along the way you're going to achieve that final ultimate goal of, of what you're hoping for for your business. I have two more kind of, I think, like core questions. So my first one is, how do you deliver bad news well? Unfortunately, as an agency, we often have to tell clients stuff they don't want to hear, either because something that they want to be performing really well isn't performing well, or they're under benchmarks, or all kinds of reasons why that might be true. What's the best way to deliver bad news? I think that it is always by being transparent and always being that way. So when it's time to deliver bad news, there is this trust built, right? That like, I'm going to tell you exactly what's happening and what this means. So I think that's kind of the core at which I live by for businesses, for people, for relationships, right? Just to always know that I'm going to give it to you straight because ultimately, at the end of this, we are in it together. I am here for your success. You are here for your success. So I think coming from that approach is really important to know that there's kind of that shared goal on the other side of this thing. I think coming through it with empathy too is really important. I think not only times are are we coming with something that might not have worked out the way that we thought it would, but often our clients are investing just as much time and effort and kind of mental brain space into these projects as well. So understanding that this sometimes can feel like a setback or a defeat for everyone is really important. But I think having kind of that eternal, you know, realistic optimism on the other side to say, this didn't work out well, but I always like to come with what's next in mind, right? How do we keep ourselves moving forward? What do we do from this? Is there something that we need to pause and to to immediately fix or remedy from this situation? Let's get that done. Let's do that. Let's talk about it. Make a plan. Or is this something that we can kind of say, okay, that didn't work out really well. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what we learned. And then let's immediately talk about how we want to apply that and keep moving forward. I think that's always kind of how I approach those conversations, Billy, with that transparency, that empathy for the situation, and then really breaking down what happened, what did we learn, what do we need to do now, whether that's something immediately or look forward in the future. Another, like, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, delivering bad news. When I started my career 20 years ago, to get customer feedback on things, you had to, I guess I'm like old all of a sudden, where you had to like host a focus group. It was a very expensive, long, painstaking kind of initiative. And now like our team uses usertesting.com as, as one kind of, of many tools. Quickly get feedback on something. And when you need to deliver bad news to a, your boss or a client, saying things like, our customers don't like the new campaign kind of hurts. But if the customer tells them and you can you know get the customer on an interview 
and let the customer te- give deliver the bad news is always like that's like my immediate cheat code for a, a, an effective way to deliver bad news because like who's going to argue with straight from the, the mouth of the customer so that's just like one thought as you were talking like how do i deliver bad news i usually let somebody else do it but no in all seriousness let the customer tell the story Caitlin is like, I'm as transparent as possible. I cut right to what we're doing next. Billy is like, I let the customer explain why they hate X, Y, or Z. Out here offering some tips. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I love both. Yeah, I can really, you know, sometimes that does totally. come into it. I think as I'm being transparent, right? Sometimes you need to talk about why, right? So it might be a customer interview. Everything is so interconnected on social media that it can even be, you know, some angry tweets that are happening, right? (laughs) Or social media comments are kind of coming out. And so I think having those and really any data that shows this is not great news, this is a failure is really important, whether Billy's your point that is just letting the customer say it. But yeah, I think taking that ownership is really key kind of at the end and ensuring that our partners, our teams, our people always know that we're connected and aligned on those goals and how we move forward is is a shared process too. I think it's really important. Caitlin, one more question. What are some of the top things that you've learned about how to create high-performing teams that are collaborative, creative, and very fast in how they work? I mean, we pitch velocity as a core component of the value that we provide clients, as well as just the best, most creative and technical solutions for any campaign that we launch. How do you create teams that are good at that in a remote ecosystem? What are some of the things that you've learned about how you empower teams to be so high performing when they're spread out across the country, time zones being an issue and don't necessarily have that ability to all just like have a whiteboard together in a room? Yes. Well, I think to quote yourself, Billy, hire smart people and get out of their way, <laughs> right? That's kind of the the core tenant. But there's a lot more nuance to that. So I think especially in a remote environment, really as a leader, what I look to do when I'm setting up teams and kind of setting up structures for success is really think about what are the what are the pillars that need to be true for this team to succeed, right? So when should they be meeting at some starting points, right? Is that having, you know, regularly scheduled meetings in the morning? When can we build in some fun to their day and then to get to know each other? I think a secret sauce that I find for my high-performing teams is that they all genuinely really like each other and they like working on their projects and they feel that genuine passion towards what they're doing. So how you can find time to cultivate that. It doesn't feel like you're adding to velocity and capacity, but you are because folks that are engaged and they're kind of clicked in to working here are really going to want to kind of perform the best that they can for their teams and show up for each other. So kind of building that team camaraderie, I think, is really quintessential to having a a high-performing team where they all feel like they're kind of in this um, and shaping this thing for the best. I think there's a lot of tools that we like to leverage to kind of make these things happen. So I'm a fangirl of Mural, but Fig Jam is also kind of winning my heart a little bit. The the new uh, whiteboarding style platform that, that Figma has recently rolled out probably not so recently now that I'm saying this. So I think there are a lot of tools that can kind of help facilitate some of this brainstorming as well as some of the structure that we can like visually put in front of our teams. 
and to keep those conversations going and to build this kind of relationship that we can have with each other, ultimately to kind of build the best product. Awesome. Yes, 100%. Yeah. So, Caitlin, you know, kind of it's been an interesting year. I'm curious what industry trend or industry or trend that you kind of have your eye on at this moment. You already said you're thinking a lot about the holidays. I don't want to hear more about that. It's just going to make me think of winter and depression. But <laughs> is there an industry trend that you're you're keeping your eye on right now? <laughs> One of the things that I'm constantly encouraged by and love seeing brands do this exceptionally well is geolocation yeah. and geotargeting within their messaging strategy. So based off of where I am, what experience I'm going to get, I think that is really critical to moving kind of into this next era of marketing, really not intercepting folks based off of, you know, arbitrary data or past purchases that they have from me, but really like where I am, what I'm doing. And then layering on top of that things that are really pertinent to the end consumer. So what season is it? What do they care about right now? Is it raining where they are? Is the food delivery service going to offer me soup and cozy food because I'm being hit by a snowstorm and I likely am craving that, right? So I think kind of intercepting folks where they are physically, but also where they are on their day, on their journey as a human um, is really critical. And I'm excited to see that keep progressing. I think for a lot of brands, some are kind of edging into that. Some are doing it better than others. But I think that's really the future of getting to folks. I love that one, Caitlin, because as you know, I love like incremental growth. I think channel execution that can improve incrementally over time as you add more advanced personalization, better content, better segmentation is something that just for many people just isn't glamorous anymore. For me, it's a thing that I love. I think you're totally right. Geo targeting and using geo based information to personalize the content of a message sounds so simple on the surface, and so few brands are actually taking right. advantage of it. We see that if you can just stop offering ice cream and start offering hot coffee, if it's raining in a particular city, or offer a specific discount to somebody who's in a stadium, for instance, it is a huge incremental yeah. driver. It's pretty nuts and not very many brands are doing it. They're certainly not doing it consistently or doing it. Well, some are. There are certainly some who are, but like so much ground to make up generally. Yeah. I like love that path. As we talk about that, it makes me think of Adam. I, I continue to think of Adam Greco who we had on the podcast and he gave this example like when we ask about machine learning and he's like so many brands are thinking about machine learning but they don't even have like basic personalization uh, in place yet. And so if you're a, a brand and you haven't leveraged like really smart geolocation functionality that's kind of at your fingertips, but you're worried about Web3, maybe you want to get your priorities straight and start to kind of, like, you know, embrace what's right before you and, and available before you start worrying too much about kind of these things you're not ready for yet, quite frankly. Yeah. I love brands that don't take terrible UX, like as an excuse to have a mediocre experience. Right. Me thinking about how all these experiences should be connected together, or should be like data informed. I like love brands where you can do that. Caitlin, my favorite final question is always the same. I want to ask you, which brands are you truly loyal to? What's at least one brand that you love because they have a great experience or they're doing something unique in market or they offer some kind of unique value proposition? 
talk positive trash about a brand that you love? This is a really hard question for me, Billy, because I'm a little bit of a brand geek. (laughs) So there are a lot of brands that I love and admire for a lot of different ways. I have a, a sub degree in brand and reputation management. So this is something that I'm always kind of thinking about. One of the brands that consistently kind of wows me, and I think especially kind of pertinent to this topic of grit and longevity is Nike. I think that is an incredible brand that just for generations has shown up and has one of the longest running campaigns that just do it, right? How long has that been around? So long. And it's continued to persist. So it's kind of become this like ethos that they are working towards, which I think is really, really exciting. Another brand that I have recently become more aware of kind of now as an adult, which is really fascinating. I was just reading a lot about Lego as a company, and I think they're approaching kind of their 40th year. And they are constantly moving and changing, but always kind of bringing back and anchoring to the core of their business. So not only have they kind of grown from this children's toy, but now over the last couple of years have really expanded as well into this adult marketplace, right? So things that are capturing movies and Lego sets that are kind of right there along with pop culture. They have Lego Batman movies and things that are kind of constantly coming out. And so they seem to be a brand that has really captured this ability to move and grow and shift and have Legoland and in-store kind of models also pop up without ever really losing sight of who they are as a brand and kind of keeping that consistent and reliable, I think, which has really allowed them to succeed, especially as they're kind of nurturing folks, not only through childhood, but then as a wraparound year for this nostalgia wave that we see kind of coming back. So that is really interesting to me and kind of those brands that can maintain this longevity, but also grow and expand and shift but still look really similar to the way that, that they were when they were founded. That's awesome. I love that example. These like story-led brands who can integrate into so many different physical and digital experiences. I mean, Disney's obviously the greatest at this that's ever been. But yeah, to hear how Lego continues to keep paces. So this nostalgia thing, like I want to understand, I guess nostalgia marketing is not inherently millennial, but there's something about it that feels very millennial-centric to me. I just saw that like McDonald's is bringing back Happy Meal toys from the 90s, the most loved Happy Meal toys. I think that is such a fascinating strategy, like playing in to people's nostalgia to change their purchasing behaviors and how that works. Yeah, especially those audiences that are just now starting to have kids, like in the idea of your kids liking the same thing that you, you know, getting into the same thing that you liked as a child. It's awesome. Uh, what was your favorite Happy Meal toy, Billy? Do you remember? Wow. I'm going to have to like super think. I think I was pretty in like, you don't know this about me, but I didn't have a lot of like toys and gadgets and gizmos <laughs> growing up. I didn't get to participate in too many of the like kid trends. But the one that I did have and I was real obsessed with was my Furby. Oh, your Furbies. I'm sure there was yeah. a McDonald's Furby toy at some point too, maybe. Yeah. And there was definitely the McDonald's Furby toy in addition. I think there were also the TY Beanie Babies. Like I never had Beanie Babies as a kid. They were just such like an impractical luxury to buy a kid. Yeah. And they were supposed to be a collector's items, but you could get like the Beanie Baby from McDonald's. Billy, what was yours? <laughs> I don't know. I was I was trying to remember. There was I remember something being obsessed with something related to sports. So I think McDonald's had this like hologram card thing at one, like a baseball card thing where you, that you could 
with each one. That, that's what jumps into my mind right now. But, uh, you know, if you did have Beanie Babies, I'm sure what the, they're probably worth a million dollars now. Is that, was that the promise? I can't imagine that. Became I wish true, they but, were. Uh, <laughs> they are not. Speaking of McDonald's, it's I just true. saw this could be an internet lie. So like fact check me afterwards. On but they supposedly are bringing back kind of these like Halloween buckets. Yeah, I distinctly remember having the orange one growing up and like trying so hard to get one of the other colors and always being very unsuccessful. I think it's really interesting nostalgia marketing to you and kind of the psychology and trends that go along with just life and existence too. I have a strong hunch that a lot of this is kind of coming on the waves of COVID, right? So like post COVID, I think we're all, we were in our homes and kind of searching for that comfort. And so I'll be interested to see over the next couple of years if nostalgia marketing continues and if this trend is kind of ever present and sticking with yeah. millennials as we continue to age and, and kind of have kids go through different waves. But uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting to kind of think about the psychology of the collective of what we've kind of gone through over the last couple of years and how that impacts marketing and kind of these big decisions oh, that yeah. are making. Well, That's one of my like huge predictions for the holidays is that people actually did love being at home and they're kind of nostalgic for COVID now where they were at home. And so this notion of like recipes, scents, really textually rich experiences, blankets as gifts, like the idea to give somebody the excuse to be a homebody when they feel so much pressure to be out is going to be a big trend this year. Well, I look forward to, does that mean the no-bake oven will be the the number one toy uh, this holiday? The uh, Is that what it's called? The no-bake? Or is it, yeah, the yeah. easy-bake oven. Easy-bake, that's it. Oh, not yeah. the no-bake, the easy-bake oven. Yeah. So awesome. Well, Caitlin, thanks so much for joining Room for Growth and sharing with our listeners some of the challenges that you, you see on a, on a day-to-day basis. And uh, we look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 